So Matt, today I think we need to begin with a warning. We certainly do, Ellie. Today's episode of the Curiosity Conversation discusses sensitive topics of an adult nature around issues of sex, sexuality and consent, including explicit descriptions of activity that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised and please be aware of who might be around you as you listen. And if you're affected by any of the issues that we discuss in today's episode, you can find a link to resources, sources of support and numbers and that sort of thing in our show notes. Welcome to the Curiosity Conversation. Today, we're talking to Leonie Leader and Nicola Law, who are postgraduate students on the Museum and Gallery Studies programme at the University of St Andrews, where they're working on a project called Sex as Subversion, Fantasy and Power. The project is all about the Beggars Benison Club, an 18th century society dedicated to the celebration of masculine sexuality. They use the club to discuss sex, sexuality and consent through history and into the 21st century. Today's episode is called Sex as Subversion, Fantasy and Power. Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of the Curiosity Conversation. Today we're joined by Leonie Leader and Nicola Law. Hello both, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. you. Great, lovely to have you here today. So I think the most important first question to ask today is what was the Beggars Benison Club? Beggars Benison Club was an all-male social club um, they formed in 1732 in Anstruther, Fife, um, where they stayed there for about 100 years until 1834 when they dissolved. Um, at the height of their sort of existence, they had branches that formed in Edinburgh and Glasgow, and even as far as St. Petersburg, although we don't think they lasted as long. Um, as a group, they, um, they met and they did a lot of different things. Um, one thing that they did was they practiced masturbation rituals. So um, this was how they initiated new members into the group. And they came together and they would masturbate um, sort of to prove, I guess, their manhood. Um, other things that they did was that they arranged lectures for the members of the club. Um, and some of these topics were quite um, different for the time. They were quite ahead of their time in some ways because they had lectures on things like contraception which wasn't really something that was even discussed back in the 18th century. Um, And the main activity that we focused on was um, one of their more problematic activities. And this was when they would hire young girls who were aged around 15 to 20. um, And these girls would exhibit themselves naked for the men. So they would have their faces kind of half covered and they would stand in the room. And men supposedly weren't allowed to touch them, but they would examine their bodies to learn more about the female form. Um, this is ex- um, especially problematic when you think about who these men were. These were men who were in their sorry, 30s to 60s. They were all generally men in positions of power in society. This would have been a very small community. So these were men who were merchants, they were higher up um, in government, and they were hiring these young vulnerable girls to come in and exhibit themselves for them. Yeah, there are clearly lots of issues there around power dynamics and and things like that do we know why the girls had their faces veiled that seems like quite an interesting detail we don't really know why we think it was um 
sort of a thin, uh, excuse the pun, a thinly veiled attempt to um, kind of keep these girls' identities hidden and give them some sort of sort of anonymity. But we don't think this really worked. It doesn't seem to have been something that they were particularly careful about. And sort of the description that we do have sort of discover, um, describes it as kind of half covered. So you could still see who they were. Um, so yeah, we don't really know exactly why they were doing this. It also lends to issues of objectification for these girls. So their naked female bodies were were considered separate from their identity, their status as a whole human being, as a woman. They were valued just for their bodily uh, genitals, which the members would examine in this kind of clinical way. Um, so the veils kind of show or add another layer to that objectification that they faced. And you said that it obviously wasn't a great attempt actually at anonymity. So do we know the identity of any of the women who took part in these the, these activities of the club? Not particularly. There are a couple of names that crop up in the written records that we have, but as I'm sure we'll discuss, these are quite problematic. Um, in terms of trusting these records. Most of the records that we have, we don't have any names. Um, in the majority of cases, we just have their ages and the records are literally just a couple of lines about what happened with them. So um, unfortunately, we don't know all that much about who they were. Uh, one story that we do have, um, which again is quite difficult to prove, uh, of later in the 18th century uh, a young woman is getting married in the Fife area and she is scorned on her wedding day by someone who shouts out uh, profanities um, about this girl who exhibited herself to club members and she is scorned and ridiculed for this but in the same sentence uh, it quotes uh, she exhibited exhibited herself for the gentleman of the club so in the same way that she is being scorned for exhibiting herself the club members are referred to as gentlemen which i think again is very interesting when you're looking at the dynamics between what was considered uh appropriate in in terms of sexual freedom and what was uh frowned upon between the men and the women this is something that links quite nicely to the modern day and that women are still shamed, whereas men are praised for their sexual activities. So the, there are a lot of um, interesting, troubling uh, topics that are brought up by some of the things that, that happened in this club. But this this was a secret club, um, at least one in which membership was restricted. Um, so how much do we actually know about what went on in, in the meetings and how, how much might be exaggeration by the members themselves or by, by sort of later... Uh, legend and rumour? Well, unfortunately, the answer to that question is we don't know all that much, at least not a lot that we can certifiably prove. Uh, and that's because the written records that we that we do have that are left by the club, uh, that is what's called the records and notes of the Beggar's Venison meetings. Uh, these are reproductions and copies of the original contemporary notes, which were unfortunately destroyed. Um, so the records that we're left with, these tell, they tell us these grandiose stories of masturbation, initiation rituals, 
of group masturbation rituals and the problematic, distressing issue of hiring young models to exhibit themselves naked, um, especially for these models. As I've said before, we have very limited information um, about what happened there, who they were, what their experiences were like. Um, so for example, uh, here's the fullest account of the viewing of the naked girls, which happened in 1734. The notes read, quote, one feminine gender, 17, was hired for one sovereign, fat and well-developed. She was stripped in the closet, nude, and was allowed to come in with her face half covered. None was permitted to speak or to touch her. She spread wide upon a seat, first before and then behind. Every night passed in turn and surveyed the secrets of nature. Uh, and so we're working from information such as this. Uh, and again, these records were written about 100 years after they happened. Um, so the records that we have were published in 1892, and they're talking about events that happened in around the 1730s. Um, so we can't prove or tell for sure what has been exaggerated, what is perhaps made up in terms of these obscene uh, and very explicit masturbation rituals. Um, and so we have to kind of sift through that written record of knowledge and see what narratives that we can draw out of there. Because I guess on the flip side of that, we have this collection of objects, which we know exist because they're, they're, they are right there in front of us. Um, and according to the written records, these objects were used during the rituals. And so in that sense, we have evidence to support or at least back up the sections that discuss how club members used these objects in their private meetings. So while we can't necessarily prove some of these activities took place, they do re the, the writing that we do have does prove that these men held some very problematic attitudes towards women. Um, you know, they believed in this idea of sex for pleasure rather than for procreation, but this was um, entirely for men. It was not for the women. And they really just viewed women as vessels to achieve this pleasure. It wasn't really, you know, women were completely excluded from this. And this is something that was really problematic. Um, so while we can't prove that they, what they were doing, we can prove what their attitudes were and we can learn a lot from that. And, and how, how do you think some of the attitudes that the, the membership of this club uh, had um, back in the, the 18th and 19th centuries, how, how do you think that compares to, to some of the attitudes that we see today? Are there any connections we can make between the, the beggar's benison of the past and some of the things that, that we see in modern society? I think there's absolutely comparisons, unfortunately. Um, attitudes haven't changed that much. We are starting to see changes, I think. But, um, you know, we're still seeing, you know, in the news every now and again, these um, stories pop up of men in power using that power to take advantage of younger girls. Um, so I absolutely think it's still, these attitudes still exist. Um, and only now are we really starting to see people trying to come forward and change them. Yeah, I think it's very important to think about, uh, and it's very interesting to compare the unequal power dynamics of situations that happen with the, within the Beggars Benison Club and how unequal power dynamics can be seen today um, as well. Like, as Nicola was saying, like with men in power or people in power or people with that kind of patriarchal power 
using that to oppress people that are marginalized. So here I'm thinking about Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Weinstein, um, people that use their power to sexually demean and oppress people. Um, And we see this in other situations such as female objectification, uh, taboos around female sexuality, as we were saying before, things like slut shaming. Um, These are conversations that all still need to be had you know and even even though this was an historical club it happened you know 300 odd years ago the the issues and the topics that surround the club are still quite relevant um to issues today the beggars benison like we say a historical club with some really really clear um connections and lessons to be learned across hundreds of years however I want to go back to the the very beginning, actually, before we get into even more meat of this discussion. The name Beggar's Benison, where does that come from? What what is Beggar's Benison? Please, please enlighten us. (laughs) I know it's a bit of a strange name, isn't it? When you first think of it, Beggar's Benison, where on earth does that come from? Um, And well, the, the answer to that is that club members used legends, folk tales, stories, pornographic texts to validate the origins of the club and kind of justify their quest for male sexual pleasure. And their name comes from one of these tales. Um, It's called The King and the Beggar Maid, and it surrounds King James V of Scotland in the 16th century. Uh, The tale goes that James V was was known to disguise himself as a common subject and kind of mingle with the subjects of Scotland. And one day he came to Anstruther. And on that day, a beggar maid was alleged to have blessed King James with a benison. Uh, and here that's a slang term for sexual favours. And this was done after she was paid to carry him across a stream in Anstruther called the Dreal Burn. And this was to avoid getting his feet wet, which I think is quite funny as the, the height of royal bravery. Um, so this woman was, was paid and received these sexual favours. And so this tale inspires the club motto of may prick nor purse never fail you. Uh, as the club prized sexual prowess and wealth. So that was their kind of two guiding pillars. So sex or the capability to exhibit sexual prowess and money. So the term beggar's benison reflects these two things. So you have the beggar reflecting the beggar maid and the receiving of sexual favours. And the benison part comes from receiving money. Um, and as well, like James V was kind of known for being sexually licentious. Um, so he was known for uh, sleeping with women of all ranks with this promiscuous zeal. Uh, and that's what David Stevenson talks about. He's the expert historian on the club that has written, uh, unfortunately, the only current monograph on the Beggar's Benison. Uh, but he talks about how James V was kind of this ideal patron for the club because of his uh sexual nature i think there's something just so yeah ironic about it actually being that the woman you know was the one to go right okay 
let's get you over the stream then yes definitely <laughs> I love that I, I love that that's just utterly ridiculous um so in terms of the club itself that's that's a little bit about the origin so what what objects do we have in the collection then what what sort of things are you going to be displaying so the collection itself is quite an interesting one there's a, a bit of a, a range of objects in it we've got things like wine glasses that are um sort of phallic shaped and um some just have phallic imagery on them. We also have a snuff box that's alleged to have belonged to King George the Fourth that he gave to the club when he received his honorary membership as part of the club. Um, and this is said to have contained um, pubic hair that he collected from his mistress. And there's a note that goes along with it that tells us this. Um, and like I said, a lot of the objects contain um, phallic imagery, but they also contain um, sort of illustrations of a of what is probably a vulva um, and sort of the men they are kind of taking control of women's bodies and using them for their own gaze. Uh, there's also like um, some sort of troubling phrases written on some of the objects. There's one medal um, that sort of depicts images of Adonis and Aphrodite and in the image Aphrodite is lying in front of Adonis and around um, the two of them are the words lose no opportunity so when you see a woman in quite a, a vulnerable state, I mean, she looks like she might be asleep and have those words around them, it's quite a troubling image to look at. They also use the words, um, sight improves delight on one of the objects. Um, again, kind of implying that looking at these women, it's just, yeah, it's quite a troubling kind of image that they're portraying there. It's this idea that the female genitals are purposefully there to kind of satisfy this male gaze and satisfy this male lust of the club um so across the objects we have such a a, a strong kind of phallic sense and this this celebration of the phallus um as this symbol uh we have the like the beggar's medicine like logo or motif if you will which is an erect phallus with a coin purse hanging from the end uh beneath an anchor which reflected their um, smuggling sentiments. So they'd smuggle goods in and out of Scotland to avoid paying taxes to the English, and that was part of their logo. Um, but so many of the objects present sexuality and sex from this male perspective, as Nicola was saying with the medals, um, where women are depicted as submissive, all the representations that we have of female genitalia, they are in a very like objectified and submissive form. I mean, all of this is pretty troubling to say the very least. The one thing that strikes me as quite interesting is that there's almost like a weird um, conflict, isn't there, between the scientific, so all of this like observation and and, and that sort of thing, and then yeah. this, this pleasure. It's a real interesting, uh, mix of things um and mm. and it's i guess the the context of the enlightenment and that sort of thing might go some way to explaining that but it is it's it's really quite troubling it makes you feel very uneasy it does definitely and i guess that's kind of why we chose the three pillars of subversion fantasy and power because there are so many facets to the club which we feel that need to be explored so the context of club members advocating for sex as pleasure where societally the stereotype was that you had sex for procreation and that was it 
So you have the idea that the men thought of themselves of, as this ahead of their time, progressive, uh, sexually liberated state. Uh, but at the same time, that sexual liberation was held just for heteronormative men, just for straight men, you know, homosexuality, women, uh, people out with this heteronormative binary ideal, they were completely excluded from that. And so, and so you can kind of see these different facets of the club, but through everything, you still kind of see this very male focused, uh, male centered viewpoint, um, where all of these different things are are to satisfy uh, men. And that's a kind of recur recurring theme through everything, whether it's the objects, the kind of texts that they read, obviously the treatment of the models that they hired, the the objects that they made. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a kind of uh, a, a running <laughs> a running theme, which is obviously quite uh, distressing. It, it, it's really interesting that we, or the club rather, focuses on um, the benefits to the men. Um, we know the names of some of the men who were involved in the club and yet the women themselves are they're almost absent we don't know their names their their faces are veiled what what does this tell us about the position of of women in that context in that society and and again maybe what what has changed if anything uh, in in the 21st century i think that we can actually learn a lot from the silence of these women you know these men have taken a lot from them they've taken their their control over their bodies they've taken their identities but we can learn a lot from how women were viewed in society from that you know they were viewed as um sort of lesser two men and they didn't really have any rights or anything in society and we can we can see that from the fact that they don't have any voice in these records or in these objects um in terms of today i think women are kind of stepping up and they're reclaiming that their voices and their their control over what's said and what's seen about them and their bodies and i think that that's something that's really powerful and something that we've tried to kind of i guess portray through our interpretation of these objects is the fact that you know these women didn't have a voice they didn't have control but we do have that now and we're going to use that yeah and i think this is i guess where you know your interpretation of this collection for this exhibition is so important so you've you've taken the decision to um interpret the objects in this collection from a feminist perspective um so i guess you know what what sort of messages are you hoping that people take away from viewing the exhibition well i i think I would say that if someone were to visit the physical or digital exhibition, uh, look at the objects, look at the narratives that we're talking about with the Beggar's Venison, and if they feel motivated or empowered to discuss notions of sexuality, of sexual liberation for all people with free consent, of power dynamics relating to sex, then I think that we would feel that we've done our job um, for people to think critically about notions of consent, of having agency and control over your sexuality and sexual freedom. 
um, on the flip side of that, analysing notions of heteronormativity when it comes to sex, topics of intersectional feminism and how we can just bring equality and empowerment to these marginalised groups that happened in the historical context of the Beggar's Benetton, but also marginalised people today. And I guess it's kind of that critical thinking of what can we learn about this historical context? Yes, it was a very distressing, uh, some very distressing things that were going on, but how can we relate this to a contemporary context um, and apply these kind of critical notions to unequal power dynamics that still exist today, whether that's politics, media, film, powerful people in society. I guess it's just a mindset of critical thinking. I'd, I'd like to ask you something about that um, in just a minute. But but before that, how have you approached this project to ensure that some of these different voices that have uh, maybe previously been marginalised or excluded, um, how have you ensured that those voices are represented within within this project? Um, so we were a group of uh, 10 feminist female students who came together to um, put uh, this exhibition together and I mean already there you're you're kind of bringing in the female voice but we were very aware that we didn't represent everyone we could never represent everyone so we worked with you know we worked with the staff at the museum the Wardlaw Museum um, which helped us get new perspectives but we also worked with an advisory panel this was a panel made up of um, staff and students from the university as well as some other like local people to St Andrews and we asked them to sort of read our interpretation and help us make sure that the language was as inclusive as possible, but also bringing that into the rest of the things that we were offering, so our blogs, our um, critical conversation events that we're having, and just making sure that we were inclusive as we could be with the exhibition. So as we've discussed, there are a number of contemporary issues um, that link back to the Beggar's Benison. What does the Beggar's Benison tell us, if, if anything, about how we approach change in relation to, to some of these issues? Um, well, I think in terms of this exhibition, I think it's really interesting to think about uh, finding this public history or like curatorial practice that defines like a usable past in the sense that you're like acknowledging this past injustice or historical scenario in the hope that a societal awareness of this injustice will prevent it being repeated in the future. So the Beggar's Benison can give us awareness about power dynamics, consent, about sexual freedom and agency for all. And it encourages us, the Beggar's Benison, I think, to have these conversations about sexuality it encourages us to deconstruct taboos. You know, they were deconstructing taboos back then about sex as pleasure or sex as pleasure for men. Um, we can just deconstruct taboos today as well um, and acknowledge and recognize marginalized voices um, as those that should now be listened to and respected. And I think it kind of relates to specific movements such as, you know, the Reclaim the Night marches that started in 1977 in Leeds about female agency. It relates to very, very recent issues of the tragic murder of Sarah Everard. It relates to movements such as Me Too about listening to and respecting victims of sexual violence. And so I think 
a really important thing that comes from this is about having those difficult conversations of listening to people about having that respect and having that space to to really listen to people um that are marginalized and are oppressed by these patriarchal structures so i think that's really interesting isn't it so people i think tend to think of museums as place for places for examining the past don't they um and we're obviously trying to to change that but traditionally speaking um you're very much examining the present through the lens of the past um so what to what extent do you think this is the right approach for museum especially if um you know if visitors aren't expecting it in the museum space i guess museums are traditionally viewed at least with like historical collections as places where you can examine the past learn about the past and that's it you know but I do think museums are a really unique space to talk about the present because collections can be used as a window to the past but through that window you can make links to today and the future and that's really important for making collections relevant to people about making collections empowering Um, to modern day issues and that might seem uh, a little out with the traditional museum space of just learning about the past but I think that can make museums really relevant and really empowering and kind of using their institutional their institutional position and the trust that that people bestow in museums to give us the kind of right position on the past and instead say you know, we have this issue, we're going to open the floor to conversation, we're not just going to tell you what happened, you know, we're not, we're not going to, you know, lecture you about what happened 300 years ago, we're going to make this relevant, bring it into the modern day, um, and try and make it, yeah, relevant to society today. I think it's a really important space for that. I, I love this idea of a usable history. I think that's um, uh, a, a really exciting concept. And I, I think I might, if it's okay with you, I might steal that uh, that phrase myself. A usable history. <laughs> sure. uh, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure we're not the first people to come up with that phrase. But yeah, the, it, it's definitely good to, to spread that message far and wide. <laughs> Um, so if, if people want to find out more both about the Beggar's Benison and about um, some of the contemporary issues that we've discussed, where can they go? Um, so if you want to learn more about an overview of the Beggar's Benison, then there's really uh, one really good place that you can go, and that's David Stevenson's book, The Beggar's Benison, Sets Clubs of Enlightenment Scotland and Their Rituals. This was really the book that we used um kind of for the entire historical context because it's the best coverage of the beggar's venison. Um, if you want more of an overview of sort of sex and the 18th century, then you, you could check out the book um, The Culture of Sensibility, Sex and Society in 18th Century Britain by C.J. Baker Banfield. Um, there's also The Horrors of Your website, which is put together by Dr. Kate Lister. And this is kind of a collection of stories and um, critical looks at sex work throughout history um, and finally you could also check out the Me Too movement for more of a contemporary view on this kind of issues Great, thank you very much I think we've got your dog in the background there <laughs> <laughs> um, Leonie, I'm there again Leonie and Nicola, thank you very much it's been a, a fascinating discussion um, and I know that we'll be speaking to you again soon
Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in today's podcast, then you can find links to sources of support in our show notes. And if you enjoy the Curiosity Conversation, you can rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform, which will help others to find it. Next month, join Nicola and Leonie again as they guest host the podcast with a very special guest. The Curiosity Conversation is brought to you by the Museums of the University of St Andrews. Before you go, we'd like to tell you about another new podcast from the Museums of the University of St Andrews. Hello everyone, and welcome to Museum Storytime. The objects in our collections and the people connected to them have had fascinating lives, and this is our chance to tell you their stories. My name's Ailey, and I'm going to be your host. You'll hear the stories of extraordinary people, like the first women to graduate from our university, find out how collections survive turbulent times in hiding, and all about expeditions that put St Andrews firmly on the map. Museum Storytime is brought to you by the Museums of the University of St Andrews. <laughs>